Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States intelligence community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this episode, we are joined by Melissa Smyslova. Melissa currently serves as the senior official performing the duties of Undersecretary of Intelligence and Analysis at the Department of Homeland Security's Office of Intelligence and Analysis, where she oversees the department's intelligence-driven integration of analysis and operations. Prior to her current role, Melissa served in a variety of roles within INA and within the U.S. intelligence community. Before beginning at DHS, she worked for the Defense Intelligence Agency studying the North Korean military, where she received two National Intelligence Meritorious Unit citations, the National Intelligence Medal of Achievement and the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board Killian Award. She is a wife, a mom, a daughter, and a leader. Melissa, it is uh, very exciting to have you on today. It's a joy to have you on today. Um, and I know we have a lot of ground to cover with your story and your career, which has been amazing. But I was hoping you could start us off by telling us who you are and where you came from. Sure. Um, I uh, came from I am a military brat. I was born on an Air Force base and I was 22 when my father retired. So that meant that I had a couple of high schools in my background um, right after college, which I went to in the state of Washington. I went to Whitman College. I came back to Washington, D.C., where my parents had moved and I applied to several organizations and was accepted um, by DIA and CIA and entered my career as a GS7 a year out of college. So 37 years later, I am still in the intelligence community. That's pretty amazing. Um, so you you just said that you were born on a military base and you uh, kind of grew up, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, a military brat. Um, I'm proud of that. Okay, I, I I never know if you should if I can say it as like a badge of honor or not. Um, so good, you know, you grew up a military brat. Can you tell us? how that impacted your character and as you've led a career in the IC, you know, um, often being one of the only women or the first woman in some of the positions that you've held. Yes, I actually think it was very, uh, it was was very important and a critical aspect of who I am. Um, I learned to be resilient and independent. I also learned that you can 
try different things and be good at it. So for example, you know, the first high school, I was into dance and theater. The second high school, dance and theater were already occupied. There was no way to get into that. So I tried debate and I debated actually with my brother. We became very good at it. We had a great time. It was one of the more formative, you know, events. And it was something I would never have tried if I had stayed in the first high school. So I think moving around gave me that insight that you can try different things. You may not like them as well, but you might. And so I believe it did make me a lot more resilient. I also um, had, uh, I think I developed the self-confidence to just stand out and, and be myself. Um, and you can move around a lot and you, you won't like every place, but there's something to like about every place. So I'm glad that you said that because, you know, you said, you know, you try different things, you can move around. And I think, you know, it's important to point out that doesn't just mean in location, but it means right. in the types of jobs that you right. take or the career path that you take. You don't, it doesn't have to be linear, right? Right. And I feel very strongly that it should not be linear. It really should be a series of experiences that, that interest you and that, cause you to, um, you know, do things that are productive and motivate you. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. So I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about how your career began and what went on during um, that transitional time when you when you began your career. Sure. So those were the early days of the IC. It was 1985. And I was hired to work at CIA studying uh, satellite imagery. We weren't allowed to talk much about what it was we were doing. And it was a dark room full of men. We were the first group of young women that were hired to help uh, balance out some of the workforce. Um, and it was a very strange job. And this is a good example. The first uh, day I came home from the job, which wasn't explained to me before I accepted it. That's how they used to recruit you in the old days. You just got a job. And then when you showed up, they told you what you were supposed to do. It turned out I was going to be counting tanks in the Soviet Union from satellite imagery on this intimidating light table in this big dark room full of middle-aged men. And I um, came home, called my uh, boyfriend, who's now my husband, of 35 years, I guess, as we will be in September, and just started crying and said it was the worst job ever. And I wasn't allowed to tell him. And there was no way I was going to stay with that because it just was terrible. Well, it turned out, you know, in the next several months, because I was locked into this as my little GS7 paying my tiny student loan, right? And trying to pay rent and all of those things that you still have to do. But back then, um, there was really no choice of me leaving. It turned out I loved it. I was really good at the imagery. My eyes could see the tanks. It was a lot more interesting than at first it seemed. A lot of the middle-aged men were actually helpful. Uh, and the women, uh, we just kind of created our own, our own environment there. And it was really interesting and a lot of fun. And CIA did a, an excellent job of training us. And so within a year, I thought it was the best job ever. Oh, wow. So I, Sometimes things I, you just can't predict, right? Well, right. And I think there's a lesson in that as well, um, mm -hmm. that, you know, you got to give it, you know, I don't know. It's hard to say sometimes, you mm -hmm. know, do you give it, how much time do you give it to really understand 
right. what the job is because no job is easy up front. And if it is easy up front, I feel like that's not the right job for you, right? right like, right. I feel like it should be a little difficult and a little scary. You should have some butterflies in your stomach. You um, but the fact that you kind of stuck, yeah, I mean, the first day you came home crying and yet you <laughs> stuck with it and then you loved it, right? And ultimately you kind of, began your career working um, on the Soviet Union, which started to interest you and you wanted to study more for the first part of your career, right? Um, so tell me a little bit more about that and what kind of unique experiences were you involved with and exposed to during that time studying the Soviet Union? So I ended up with probably the best experience ever for anyone working the Soviet Union at that time. I was selected to fill one of a handful of positions that were offered to CIA for the baseline inspection team for the first treaty between the Soviet Union and the United States, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty. Um, so I, um, there were 200 people on the baseline U.S. team, most of whom were military officers, some missile experts, a few treaty negotiators, and there were 20 women. So I was one of those 20, again, picked uh, to be the expert on the systems from an intelligence point of view. And we did deploy to the Soviet Union. We would go back and forth from uh, Germany. And then my team actually was the weighing and measuring team. So we got to go around the world to the portal that was established in Japan and then fly into uh, Siberia to do one of our inspections. It was a phenomenal experience. Here we were the first Americans ever on these Soviet bases. And uh, I was one of 20 women. The Soviets had the same complement of 200 inspectors. Obviously, you know, maybe it's not obvious, but, but none were women. They were all older <laughs> and they were all men. Um, it was, I was 26 years old. And so oh I look goodness. back at those pictures and marvel at myself. Uh, the missiles now today and a description of the inspection team is in the Smithsonian. Isn't that crazy? Oh, wow. That's amazing. It is. I've taken my daughters there and shown them the missiles and said, I was one of those people counting, weighing them, measuring them. It was the beginning of the um, Trust But Verify provision that is required now, I think, in all of the treaties. So, and it was a lot of tension. We were prepared for catastrophes and medical emergencies, none of which happened. It all turned out to be a very positive experience, in my view, for the U.S. and for the Soviets. Oh, wow. I will tell one funny story, though. The first please do. Time, please the do. First time we were at the base. So this is the first time. And we are all a little nervous, a little bit tense. And then we're handed anagraph drawings, which are the, the computer generated drawings of a of a facility. And on the top and on the bottom, this is no joke. It was stamped in in uh, English and Cyrillic letters. U.S. U.S.S.R. Eyes only. <laughs> How's that for a beginning? And we all burst out laughing, us and the soaps. And so it was like, okay, here we go. All right. Oh, wow. I, I, I just can't even imagine. I mean, uh, there's just so many stories that I'm sure you have from that time. And, and especially looking at, you know, being able just to be there and be a woman there and be a woman studying or working on that uh, specific topic. Um, who knows if 
another American woman will ever be able to do that again with uh, with the current climate. So that's, I mean, it's historical. That's amazing. So uh, after, uh, so if if that wasn't enough, studying (laughs) the uh, Soviet Union, you um, transitioned your study and ultimately became one of the IC's leading experts on North Korea, which I'm very interested in. So could you tell us a little bit about that transition uh, and the, you know, of studies and what you discovered as part of your team studying North Korea? Sure. So as you know, I was what a GS9, so I wasn't very senior, but I had become pretty good at identifying the tanks on the satellite imagery for the Soviet Union. So I was asked to help out with a project that was to identify the type of armor vehicles in North Korea. And that ended up being my um, my job for the next several years. For, it ended up being 12 years in total that I just focused on North Korea's military. Wow. First few years in the imagery field. And then I did transition to be an all source analyst. It intrigued me. The whole country did the... Uh, but I did focus only exclusively on the military. Um, from an imagery point of view, it was so much more fun in some ways than studying the Soviet Union and that the whole country is basically the garrison. There is no fencing around the batteries or companies. So it was a bit more challenging or interesting. You could also um, sneak in and look at all of the imagery uh, that was taken of the whole country, whereas you can't do that from the Soviet Union. So uh, I did find it a little bit more suited to my interest in like knowing everything I can about something. So I looked and at the career and that was, that was the best decision that I've made. One of two best decisions was to stay with one topic for that long. And why, why do you think that was? Just because I really just enjoyed being very good at something, and I felt it was um, it suited me, and I enjoyed just understanding that it was um, something that was at the time not uh, as encouraged by supervisors or managers. You know, I was often asked to go do something else again to to get ahead or have a better career, but I I just really enjoyed my topic. And there was, there was a lot to it. I didn't just do armor and I moved to artillery, you know I mean? It did different things. That's, that's awesome. So I know um, that we've all had, we all have um, our stories about where we were on 9-11. And I know that you have um, a special story about where you were and how that ultimately led you to working at DHS. Could you share that with us? Sure. So after uh, studying North Korea, I did uh, change my job. I became the senior analyst in the DIA's special programs office, which handled the classified material that is outside of the normal system. I did that so I would have a better better work-life balance. I was pregnant with my second daughter, Katie, and I knew that the trips to South Korea were just going to be a little bit too much. And candidly, the flight just was, it was too long for me. I just didn't think I could keep doing that. So, and I was traveling to South Korea about four times a year. So I switched um, to this job that should have had better hours. Um, Main building was at the DIA's um, analytic center. It's on Bowling Air Force Base. But my second office was in the Pentagon. 
on the south side of the building. And uh, I was supposed to work every Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Pentagon. On 9-11, it was such a beautiful day that I was late leaving my house. My parking spot was better at Bowling Air Force Base. So I drove to Bowling. I didn't have a cell phone um, and reported there and then sent a colleague in my place to the Pentagon on the bus. He turned out fine. In fact, I just ran into him not that long ago, but it was a, it was a terrible day for all of us. Um, I did report to the Pentagon that Thursday and switched uh, my office hours and switched and all of the material that we were using for the global war on terror um, quickly was put into special channels. And so uh, I worked pretty much every day for the next month, several months. Um, it did make me change my career goals. I, my career goal had been to not be an executive, but maybe be a senior leader in a substantive area. Most likely it would have remained somewhere in Asia or nuclear proliferation, something along those lines, in line with what I had been studying. But after 9-11, I knew I wanted to help with the war on terror because I had spent so long, I think, being an expert. I also knew I couldn't become an expert on terrorism quickly. I was already a senior person at GS-15. And so that prompted me to make the decision to move to DHS, where I could use my expertise as just an intelligence officer, not an expert on terrorism, but as an expert on intelligence and how you produce intelligence, collect intelligence, and talk about it. And so that's what I did in 2004. So I think uh, one thing I'd like to just um, mention here that you said was, you know, you had decided you didn't want to be an executive, but you still wanted to be a senior member of the community. And I think that's so important to hear, I think, for for some folks um, entering their career, but even mid-career folks that, you know, you don't you don't have to not everyone has to be the senior executive, right? And you right. could just love your job and, and excel at your job and become a senior leader in your job. That doesn't mean you have to or want to. Um, not everybody wants to be a senior executive, right? Well, in fact, when I moved in 2004 to DHS, the plan for DHS Office of Intelligence, which was brand new, created in the Homeland Security Act in response to some of the observations of the 9-11 Commission report on weaknesses in our intelligence system. The plan was for no executives to be put in DHS INA. GS-15 would be the highest grade in the construction of INA. I knew that going in, and that's one of the reasons most of my, you know, mentors advised me not to move, but I, I moved not for a promotion, but for the mission and the job. And it was my expectation I would just continue as a GS-15. So it wasn't until a few years later that a decision was made to give us those senior grades. But when I moved out, I, I was told there is no possibility for you ever to get promoted when you move over there. Well, and that says a lot about you. It was about the job and the mission. So um, that's pretty awesome. So I'd love to, I myself would love to learn a little bit more about DHS um, INA. And I think a lot of our listeners would like to know more as well. Um, I think this is an office that uh, not everyone knows a whole ton about. And so could you give us a little bit about its mission and what you do there? 
Sure. And I do think we are the least understood in the intelligence community. And because we work in the unclassified space, we also get some inaccurate press or bad press. Um, we were created, again, as part of the Homeland Security Act and to address some key gaps that were identified after 9-11, namely that intelligence that was needed by non-traditional um, people, mostly state, local, tribal, territorial, and private sector owners and operators, that they weren't getting that intelligence. So we were set up to make sure that their needs were being answered by intelligence and that they actually received intelligence information, meaning that we had to go into the classified realm, get, get information downgraded or extract from, um, at the beginning, almost exclusively international terrorist activities. Things like uh, what kind of bombs were the terrorists interested in preparing? What were the targets that the terrorists were interested in um, attacking? What would be the response? And so it was giving, pushing all that information out to the people that could identify those those um, tactics or respond to the targets and help prepare the United States to be safer. So um, it was a, a very uh, dynamic job at the beginning. We had to organize the state and local constituents and the private sector people to give them clearances. We gave them their first intelligence briefings. We told them how the intelligence cycle worked, how they could get their requirements into the system. The same time we had to advocate with our intelligence community partners that we needed their information downgraded, that it wouldn't have uh, a negative impact on sources and methods. We were interested rather in extracting those details about a possible future attack. We worked across the whole of the department, too, to make sure that there was money available to protect the critical infrastructure in the United States. So that's the, the original goal of INA. We've evolved since then, as have the threats that are present here in the homeland, to play a bigger role in not only giving that information to our important, our number one constituents, which uh, are our state and local and private sector partners, those security officers and police and other um, officials that are in the United States to protect us. So they have the threat information they need to, to do that appropriately. But also we're learning that more of the threat information is present inside the United States that the intelligence community needs to understand more wholly the range of threats against the United States, specifically cyber threats, um, threats of foreign misinformation or disinformation, threats from transnational criminal organizations. So it's a different threat environment now than when I joined in 2004. And so I, I would, I, I wonder what, um, we have a lot of uh, early career listeners or, or listeners who want to enter the IC. And I would, what would you um, say to them? Why should, why would they why would they want to come to DHS INA? Why would how how do you you know what's a good recruiting pitch for them? Like what's <laughs> why 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 your agency? 
I think we just have so many more opportunities to make a difference across the organization. We're not huge. We're about a thousand people. So we're small enough that you can you can identify your niche and, and move forward with it. We have a, again, that un, unique mission and that we are exclusively focused on our favorite country, right? The homeland. And we, but we straddle with the, we're members, whole members of the intelligence community. So you have all the opportunities of the IC. You know, we can write for the president's daily brief. We do. We write for the national intelligence estimates. Um, we do participate in all those intelligence community events and forums and production opportunities. But we also have a special opportunity to really interact with our state and local officials to interact with the private sector. Last night I was at the Domestic Security Alliance Council and the dinner was with um, hundreds of chief security officers of the of the largest companies in the United States. And the alliance is to make sure that they have the information they need to keep themselves and us safe. So it's just, it's a, to me, it's, it's the it's the opportunity to come here that I would pitch to a young person. I love it. And it sounds dynamic. I mean, you know, a dynamic place to be. Um, yeah, we, we're very busy too. So <laughs> well, well, that's what you want. Yeah. I, I think you would be, I think you would be for quite busy. So I would, I, you know, keeping on the same theme of, you know, the young, young folks, um, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self uh, now? And what's the worst piece of advice that was ever given to you? Yeah, I love this question because I do look backwards. And I think um, I would have told my 20-year-old self to just stay positive, believe in myself, which, which I did. But at times, like all of us, we waver and realize that, and it sounds trite, but it is about the journey, not the destination and, and really keep yourself focused. And I think at least looking back on my career, I was the first woman in so many different events and, um, jobs. I was, I felt like there were times when I was pressured to, to get ahead, to become the senior. And I resisted much of that, but uh, it, yeah, I would tell myself to just ignore it and to keep, I know, isn't that terrible? No, I love it. It's <laughs> honest. <laughs> it's honest. And I, I just would say, you know, your work is your life. Your life is your work. I mean, it's all intertwined. We can't extract those two. Right. So you need to um, do work that you find interesting and meaningful. And well, especially in this space, you're, you know, your work is your life. Like you're, you're giving service um, to this nation. So a hundred, a hundred percent. So if, did you have anyone who gave you some really bad advice that you look back now and say, it was how all, could they? yeah, no, it was all the same themes to include um, when I wanted to move to DHS. So many of my colleagues or mentors said, you know, you should never do that because you won't have the opportunity to get promoted. It's a mess over there. They don't know what they're doing. Well, of course they did. They were brand new. Um, 
And I think all of those kinds of that kind of advice was bad for me, you know, take the job in the front office, you'll get seen, you'll get promoted more quickly, probably would have been true. But at the end of my career now, I've been promoted as much as I ever could have been. And I'm sure there were parts in there where I could have been promoted more quickly, but would I have ended up here? Probably not. You know, so I just think you have to know yourself and trust yourself mm-hmm. and you have to have the, that's uh, what I tell my daughter, have the courage to reject the advice that, that doesn't sound right to you. I love that. Uh, as far as you saying, I, I, I didn't know how to articulate that, but um, to have the courage to reject the things that don't work for you, because I've seen so many um, young mentees of mine who get all these different um you know, pieces of advice from their different mentors. And then like, I'll, I'll talk to them and they'll say, well, what, what should, you know, so-and-so who's super senior told me I should do this. So maybe I should do this. And I always tell them, no, you have to do, you have to take all of, you can listen to all of those pieces of advice and you might take a little bit from here and a little bit of there, but you have to do what's right for you. They, they don't know what's in your heart and how you feel and what you ultimately want to do. You, this is your career and your life. And so I love, I love that, that you have to have the courage to say no to the things that are not right for you and know yourself and what ultimately you want to do. That's wonderful. So you know, to switch gears a little bit, um, aside from leading DHS INA, you are a wife, you're a mom, you're a daughter. Um, so tell us what you tell your children and mentees about enjoying your job and your family while maintaining, you know, I think the big word right now is self-care and wellness. You know, you have this, you've had this big career, you have this big job right now. Um, and I think all of us, it's not just women, men and women, you know, still strive to have this balance and this sense of wellness. And so what do you tell uh, your mentees about that? Yeah, it's essential. And we all have to um, prioritize our family and our well-being. And I think the, the tricks I have used or the tips I have used is to make things routinized, you know, see mom every Tuesday night, uh, make sure that no matter which job I took, I, I let them know I had to leave early on Fridays to facilitate a dance class, you know, get my daughters there and try to, as much as you can, um, include that in your schedule. So you're scheduling your life, but, uh, I, I think that's vitally important. I've had the same book club for over 20 years. It just, you commit to things and you, you, have to prioritize them. And if you don't, if you just think that you're going to slip this in during the day, in my view, it just, in my experience and my observation, that doesn't work as well. You know, so you try very hard to say the first Monday of every month, we're going to have this book club. And then some days you you can't, you know, right, right. Especially for an intelligence, um, you know, the enemy gets a vote and sometimes (laughs) that isn't going to happen. But if you try, I think you can more than more often than not do that. And so I have done my best to balance all of that. It's, it's not easy, but nothing's easy. That's yeah, you know, it's so interesting. I mean, this subject is talked about in nauseum with mm-hmm. all the time, right? And I don't think it just is something that we talk about with women. I actually don't like it just to be a discussion we're mm-hmm. having with women. I, I, I want my husband to have uh, self-care and wellness and, yeah. and time with the family as well. Um, 
but I feel like it's still important to talk about because um, no one has perfected it. And I think it's important to pe let people know you can't perfect it. it. It ebbs and flows and you just have to do what's best for you. Right. That's all true. So, uh, you know, this is the fun part of the, the episode where um, we, at the end of each episode, as you know, um, we end with the same question and keeping with the name Iron Butterfly. If you had to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? And this was the hardest part of preparing for this podcast. So I did solicit advice from my daughters, from my husband, from my colleagues. So I have decided my code name would be Bumblebee. <gasps> so that is, um, in my view, it's, it's, it's something that's not very... Um, uh, it's uh, small. I am not very big as a person. I am only five foot one. I'm a small person. So it's small. Bumblebees work really hard. They work for the whole hive. They are, um, but they're flighty. It's hard to figure out kind of <laughs> where they're going. And I do, I do acknowledge and accept that in my own personality now, but they do have a stinger. So I, oh, love I love that. <laughs> don't underestimate them. Oh my gosh, that is a good one. We haven't had anything close to that. That is a really good one. So that so, was a team effort here. I like <laughs> that. That's to my daughters. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. So tell me, Melissa, what is next for you? What is on the docket for you after what you're doing right now? Sure. Well, right now, as you know, I lead one of the 18 intelligence community entities. I'm hoping that that ends soon. So I... <laughs> Acting. I am very excited about our nominee. And so I remain hopeful the Senate will confirm him. And then I will transition him is my hope and expectation and then retire. And my goal is to retire and um, continue to uh, read good books and spend more time with my family and friends and maybe do some volunteer work. So that's my goal. Uh, it sounds amazing. Sounds amazing. I hope very, very appreciative of the career that I've had. But. Well, I'm I'm hopeful, and I I will be thinking positive thoughts that this happens in short order for you. <laughs> yeah, because it is it is uh, not easy to predict uh, the Senate, is it? <laughs> uh, it is not. It is not. Um, Melissa, this has been so fun, um, and it just was such a great episode, a lighthearted episode that um, just put a smile on my face. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your career, your service to our country, um, and I'm just thrilled that you um, came on today to share your story. So thank you so much. Thank you. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Katie Naquin Hopkins, Amanda Young, Liz Herndon, and Riley Boyd for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time.